Want to hear more about life from a Catholic perspective? Ave Spotlight is a new weekly podcast where you can listen to hosts Father Dennis Strack, CSC, and Katie Prejean McGrady as they talk with special guests about culture, current events, and all things Catholic. You'll walk away with a better understanding of your faith and how to live it in the world today. Check it out on AveMariaPress.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Ave Maria Press on social media. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Nothing new can happen between my son and me. And while I have taught the parable of the prodigal son many times, these days I feel not just why. When the lost is found, there is great cause for celebration. But how truly the zest goes out of life with such a loss. There is no word for the pairings of emotions one feels in grief, the enormity of love mixed with the enormity of sorrow. Those words come from Robert Cording in an essay he published in the Image Journal with the title, In the Unwalled City. In this remarkable essay, he puts into words what cannot be contained in words, his grief for the death of his son, Daniel his desire to keep communion alive with his son, and his duty of remembrance that raises his son to life in his own life. I reached out to Professor Cording after reading his essay, and he graciously agreed to join me here on our show today. Now, if you've been listening to recent episodes of our show, you know that I am working on a project about our relationship with our beloved dead, a project that is coming to life between my own McGrath Institute for Church Life and Ave Maria Press. It's part of a book I am writing on this topic. But as part of the project, I've been talking with people about their memories of and their hopes for their beloved dead. I've asked a few of those people if they would be willing to record an episode for our show so you can listen in too. This is the third of these episodes. On the previous two, I hosted first Laura Kelly Finucci and then Stephanie Dupre. My guest today, Robert Cording, is Professor Emeritus at the College of the Holy Cross. His most recent poetry collection is Without My Asking. You can find some of his other recent work in the Georgia Review, New Ohio Review, Hudson Review, and The Common. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Lenny. Bob, toward the end of your essay, you say of your son Daniel that, quote, his presence makes a claim on me even if it is beyond my ability to understand. Now, if I understand you correctly, it sounds like you were saying that you feel his presence because he has a claim on you. So I want to ask you, is that, is that right? Can you tell us about that? Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Let me begin by saying what I don't mean, because yeah. it's a tricky word. It means a lot of things to, to different people. Uh, I, I don't mean that I've ever felt my son's presence as if he were still living in my house or visiting my house in this or that room. Like, it's not like I walk into the living room and say, oh, I feel my son's presence. That's not what I'm talking about. Gabriel Marcel, the philosopher, basically called that sort of a vaporized object. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I agree with that, it, that it, it's, it's something that obviously we, in our 
desperation in our grief we would like to feel, but that's not what I'm talking about. I would describe it this way, that birth, death, and love are the central mysteries of our lives. And the death of a child it involves basically parents in all three of these mysteries. I'm going to quote something from Gabriel Marcel. Most people know him as a philosopher, uh, an existentialist philosopher who was uh, a faithful existentialist philosopher. But this is from a play that he wrote late in his life. Uh, One of uh, the interesting things about Marcel is during the war, he was in charge. He had a little office. He He wasn't a soldier, but he had an office where he had to tell families and meet with families about their dead children, their children who had died in the war. And it it affected him greatly. And this is from a play. It's a character speaking, but it's almost verbatim, according to Marcel, in terms of what he heard from a woman. He calls her Edith in the play. But this is what she says. When I think of him, her son, in a certain way, with tenderness, with recollection, there wells up in me something like a richer, deeper life in which I know he participates. The life is not I, nor is it he, it is both of us. This passage captures sort of what I was trying to get at in the essay. As soon as I read that, I thought, oh, I know that. I, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've felt that. It's not about, I mean, we could read this passage and think it's only about remembrance, about remembrance in a, as she puts it, the character puts it, in a certain way. But it seems to me that it's also about, and, and much more about, the power of love which allows one to feel the deceased loved one as a kind of, I would call it an accompanying presence. Mm. I mean, I've always felt my son as if he were accompanying me places, as if he were not in the room with me, but in my life. I I feel that Daniel accompanies me, that there is the possibility, as I put it in that essay, of life in death in life. And what I mean by that is love is what goes on in death, after death, in life that accompanies death, that love is there. Daniel's presence, as I said then, calls to something in me to answer. It's as if his loss, his utter absence, has to be part of my ongoing life. I sense him as an absolute hole in my life that I must accept. And I have to carry that absence around with me. And that if I can be present to that absence, it helps me to to be whole with the W-H-O-L-E. Yeah. I, I think when, when Daniel died, we in the church service for him, w- which I ended up writing, you know, I mean, they gave you a little formula, yeah. but, I, you know, because I write, I, <laughs> they, they called on me basically to put it together. But the, the, one of the readings early on, which sort of the whole service centered around, was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's had a a profound influence, you know, on my life. And this is what he says, and and this goes to what I've been talking about. Nothing can make up for the absence of someone whom we love, and it would be wrong to attempt to do so. We must simply hold out and see it through. That sounds very hard at first, but at the same time, it is a great consolation. For the emptiness as long as it remains unfulfilled, preserves the bonds between us. It is nonsense to say that God fills the emptiness. 
God doesn't fill it, but much more leaves it precisely unfilled, and so helps us to keep alive our former communion with each other, even at the cost of pain. And, and that's really the kind of presence that I'm talking about. It's both consoling and an acceptance of utter absence that one must leave, as Bonhoeffer puts it, unfilled. As you said there, to keep alive the former communion, even at the cost of pain. Right. I'm reminded, thinking back to something else that was there in your essay, you spoke about, you speak a lot about loss, but you spoke about a double loss that I imagine came, uh, everything here came upon you as a shock, but this maybe as another shock that there was the loss, as you said, of your loved son. But then there was the second loss or the accompanying loss of the loss of your life, at least as you knew it. When you were speaking about this absence, this hole, this absolute hole that you carry around, and especially in your essay, the way in which you're talking about your own memory and your memories of your son, I, th- I was getting a feel of what you meant. I think for any of us who haven't had that that experience, this dreadful experience ourselves firsthand, we can only rely on you to tell us about it. So could you try to tell us a little bit about that, that second loss? I I think for me, and I've said this in books and essays and almost everything I write, certainly all the poems I've written, the foundation of my belief is Genesis 1. And the foundation of my life is in Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth and declared it good. I mean here that the generative act is an act of love, of pure gift. And I've said this in many poems, that everything that is need not be, but is. I I think that's the thing that my life is centered on, that, that sense of love that the world is and need not be, uh, that sense of being. To say that places one in a posture of praise, of gratitude. But since my son's death, that has come much harder. For, for me, praise was something that I felt like I lived in, and gratitude was something that I lived in. I don't think that's changed in the sense that I don't feel it. I feel that it also includes the kind of grating loss, as I put it in that essay, you know, that you feel the great ingratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you feel this, this loss. Another way to, that I could talk about this is my, my favorite biblical book, I taught the Bible for many years at Holy Cross, is the book of Job. If we think of Job after the whirlwind, after Yahweh restores Job's previous life and gives him a new family, how are we supposed to see that? You know? <laughs> we know, and I can't believe that God thinks like, well, here's an adequate replacement. <laughs> right. I took away your wife and your children, right. and now I'm giving you a wife and children. You right. know, That would be like equating human beings with sheep and camels and, uh-huh. and horses and whatever. So that I, I think we have to understand that story as that one cannot replace the other. And that I certainly feel that way. Nothing can replace my son. Absolutely nothing can replace my son. And in that sense, my life cannot be seen by me in the same way. I, I, you know, I can't, I just can't see it the way I once saw it. On the other hand, I feel as if Job, of course, has been given that experience of the whirlwind. My, my whirlwind was my son's death. And it's 
helped me to understand my life better in some ways or more clearly or at least at least the sense of how love is connected you know to sorrow and suffering i mean i still feel as i've always felt that my task is that i have to learn to die but that involves now this new element this would be post whirlwind the new element in this post whirlwind is i must continue daniel's life inside my own until i do die and you know that's my new sense of things that in some ways has replaced the old. You know, Daniel was just had his own life before. He was married. He, you know, he had his own, fa- he was going to have his own family, never did, but he was going to. But he had, his, he had his house. He had a couple of houses, actually. But, you know, now I have to continue that life in, in some ways. And you asked in an email to me about the Catholic funeral liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand the ambiguity of the phrase faith, faithful people. You know, life has changed, not ended. Right. Yeah. yeah. One could take those faithful people for whom life has changed, not ended, as people who, because of their faith, will have eternal life. Uh, but I would like to see it much more in the terms of my own situation. Mm-hmm. And that is that life is changed by such a loss, irrevocably changed, but it hasn't ended. And, and I take that to mean, you know, what I just said about Genesis 1, you know, that we that basically I can see a new thing in terms of, or a new task in terms of what I must do, and that is keep Daniel alive in my own life, no matter the cost, no matter the pain of doing so. So that's how I I, I would say it. The, the harder thing to say, of course, from Genesis 1, is that every individual life is a gift, but also Genesis 1 tells us that the continuum of life is a gift. That's comforting but very difficult for a father to say in this particular instance, you know, to, I I know I'm not the only one who's ever lost a child uh, and I I would never claim to be. And most, and many, many people have lost their children under way worse conditions than my own loss. On the other hand, it's such an unendurable loss on one level. You have to endure it, but it's, it's such an unendurable loss on one level that to say, well, life continues seems utterly inadequate to the circumstances that you find yourself in. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Robert Cording, Professor Emeritus at College of the Holy Cross. Professor Cording recently published an essay in the Image Journal with the title, In the Unwalled City, in which he talks about grief, mourning, longing, and the living remembrance for his son, Daniel, who died just over three years ago. As you said there in your foundational belief, your belief coming from the foundation of Genesis 1, the pure gratuity of life, of existence, that what is need not be, it brings my mind back to another part of your essay, and I think you were sharing something from between you and your wife, which had to do with really crying out for where is your son, Daniel? And as you put it there, I think you said that we cannot imagine our loved ones are nowhere. It is oblivion, not location, we fear. So I want to ask you then about this this gift of being that need not be but is because of God's gratuity and the imagining, the stretching of the imagination for the where of your son. How do you imagine that, the where? Do you see? Do you trust? Do you... What is the where? Yeah, it was 
that phrase from my wife, where are you, Daniel, mm-hmm. was and continues to be the most heartbreaking part of this experience for me. She wants, and I would love as well, desperately to know what we cannot know, where Daniel might be, you know, as a, as what, as a soul, as whatever goes on after one dies, as nothing, just a body in the ground. All those are equally possible. I I said in that essay that I think it's connected to this fear that we have of oblivion. And, you know, I was thinking then of Dante and how in his travels, he comes upon the dead and each one of them, more than anything else, want to be remembered. And they say, remember me. When you get back, remember me. And I, I guess for me, what I was trying to get at was the way that remembrance is our only antidote to oblivion, that what we have, since we cannot know, and I don't, I'm not trying to say I don't believe in an, in an eternal life. Uh, I don't know what I believe, to be honest. I, I'm perfectly happy talking about myself as somebody who might just go back to the earth in the cemetery next to my son where he's buried. On the other hand, it, it seems to me that, that, that there's a deep, deep truth in, say, the sacraments, that Christ lives when we take eat and when we take drink in remembrance of him. And our loved dead live when we allow the absence and pain of their departure to be filled by the presence of our love. It can't fill that hole, of course, but love is the thing that continues and can continue. Love is the only thing, it seems to me, that's as strong as death. And in that sense, Daniel is where I love him. (laughs) And, you know, for me, like Hildegard of Bingham says, the soul is in, it's like the soul is in the house at the center of your heart. That's where I like to imagine Daniel. Hmm. as sitting in the center of my heart, in a little house of my heart. That's a beautiful and stirring image. It reminds me also of Teresa of Avila in the seventh and last of the mansions of the interior castle, which is the throne room of God alone, right? That's right. So at the center, at the center there, your son remains. Right. As you just said, Bob, that, you know, I, I'm so grateful for your for your honesty because I think it's it's what many of us would say. I don't quite know what I believe. You're sort of working this out. And when you turn this towards yourself, you know, what would come upon death might mean one thing. But when it comes to your son, something else is being, it seems, pulled from you, drawn from you. And you said you want... And this is where you were commenting on Dante, I think. You want what you want for your son is your son in his body. Right. I suppose now we're talking about the resurrection of the body in some way, but really what we're talking about is your desire to be with your son as you know your son. Yeah. How does that how does that desire instruct you or enflesh your belief or draw out the uncertainty from the belief? Well, this may seem in- inadequate, but I think we can perform and I'm not trying to take God's place in any way, but I think we can perform some kind of resurrection of the body with, you know, our, with our daily lives. You know, as I said in that essay, my wife lights this votive candle every day in this little pottery church that we bought in the Northwest. 
And we look at a picture of Daniel that's there. And and then in another room, basically, we have a, a whole array of pictures. Now, those pictures are about as painful as pain can get. One group of those pictures is a, a wedding present he made his life of. He took an old window pane and turned it into a, a gallery of pictures. And they're all pictures of their wedding. His happiness and her happiness, you know, is crushing, is, is crushing. But I sit there and I look at it. Uh, and make myself look at it every day. I sit with pictures of him all around me every day. I'm not trying to bring him back. I, I perfectly accept the fact that he's gone. On the other hand, I want his physical features. I, I want to remember the way a poem works, you know, is like we resurrect that which is past. I, I try to resurrect in my mind each day the sound of his voice, what his hand felt like, how he walked. And I, I think that's one of our tasks as, as people, you know, I, I do this with grandparents and mother and father, you know, all of whom are dead. It, it's our task in some ways to keep them alive in, in bodily form. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't imagine a ghost when I imagine my grandfather, I, I try to imagine, like we used to work out in the snow during the winter. Uh, he was a plumber and we melted, he would bring home some lead and we would melt the lead and we would make sinkers for fishing in the in the springtime. And, you know, I can usually get there, you know, in my mind pretty well, uh, in a pretty bodily way. I think that's the best we can do. I don't, I don't, obviously it's not a resurrection of the body by any means, but it is it is part of remembrance, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, it, it's what God asks in terms of the Sabbath. You know, remembrance is always, uh, it's, it's always like the Sabbath. That is, you know, we have to remember what we were given over and over and over and over again for it to be real. And, and that's all through the Old Testament. You know, that's what Yahweh asks, basically to remember. I mean, he keeps telling the Israelites, don't harden your hearts. Remember, you know, re remember what I've done, you know. And, and, and Moses, of course, in his last speeches in Deuteronomy says the same thing, you know, that if you remember what God has given you and you follow his commandments, not because you need to so that you won't be struck dead, but because those commandments, if followed, will give you life. Then you will live. And as Moses says, it's always that choice. You choose life or you choose death. And to choose life is basically to choose that love, that remembrance of what we've been given. Hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Robert Cording, Professor Emeritus at the College of the Holy Cross, talking about his recently published essay in the Image Journal, which comes under the title In the Walled City, in which he talks about grief, mourning, longing, and the living remembrance for his son, Daniel, who died just over three years ago. I noted also, Bob, that you mentioned that I think you and your wife had done some form of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius over about a year. This must probably the 19th annotation retreat form of it. And as you were talking here about those thick, particular memories of your son, of your grandfather, 
I can't help but think about the way in which Ignatius leads his exercitants to ponder, to spend time with the concrete particulars of Christ's life, of one's own encounter with Christ, of hearing and seeing and feeling. How were the exercises part of what you have come to understand about this remembrance, this duty of remembrance? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great question. And as you anticipated, you know, the answer is quite a lot. My wife and I had different experiences, I would say. We, we did them separately, but together. We yeah. were doing them at the same time, uh, a year-long version, but together. And our son was suffering a lot of pain. His back was, you know, all, all uh, discs uh, ruptured in the lower back. And he was spasming in pain constantly, and operations failed. And yet he was so young that they didn't want to fuse his whole back together. And so, you know, it got so that he could hardly get up to go to the bathroom. And she, of course, prayed for him to get better pretty constantly along the way. And, and I could never do anything like that. Uh, I, 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 never, I never pray for anything. <laughs> huh. Other than, as I say in that essay, the, the, the Kaddish is kind of a, a form where you pray for a prayer for praise. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I do do that. But I never asked for anything. And so never was, never felt let down. For, for me, the exercises is always this embodiment that you're talking about, where you, and I never was very good at doing the ones, the exercises themselves that <laughs> are in the book. They're so silly to me that I could never pull them off. Like, you're at the manger, you know, yeah. or something like that. Crack up, uh, and and what and my spiritual sort of guide was quite good at just saying, "Yeah, you're right. Don't even try that," you know, because uh, I would say I fail. I, you keep telling me I'm supposed to be good at this, you know, because I'm a poet, but I stink at it. Uh, but I found that placing myself in scenes or in I mean, I do this all the time in poems, and I felt like the exercises really helped me, like the way they helped, say, somebody like John Donne, who also did the spiritual exercises over and over, mm. embody the poems that he wrote, you know, in something like the Holy Sonnets. Those are embodied scenes. And I do do that, and I certainly do it with my son. You know, there's a couple of places in that essay where I embody, you know, a memory of sitting with him on his back porch or in a house that we went to look at and sitting in the driveway of the house, imagining sort of the inside of the house and what we might do with it. Cause we both like fixing things. Yeah. And, and the exercises are absolutely wonderful at doing that at, at, at concretizing detail and teaching us how to place ourselves in a real embodied situation that gives life to things. That's what I. That's the experience I had reading that part of the essay. When you speak about um, imagining, you know, going to, this house with your son. In fact, you drove there, right? And you, right, yeah, 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 you were there, but I felt like I was sitting in the backseat of a colloquy from the exercises, right? Like you and your son having this heart to heart conversation about real things about what's in front of you. And that's how the exercises have, have actually functioned in my life. Hmm. You know, I, I have written countless poems out of the experience of the exercises that had nothing to do with the, yeah, <laughs> to give an exercise, right. but was pretty much the same thing that they were asking to do with, with another experience. Yeah. 
Let me ask this then. Maybe this will draw us somewhat to a close. It's a difficult place to end, but you'd mentioned you don't pray for things. <laughs> Do you hope? I grew, I grew up Lutheran. I understand. I understand. No, and I could also appreciate, I grew up Catholic, but I also appreciate what you're saying. Like it's a way of not being disappointed too. I get that. Do you hope for things? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. And I hope primarily to understand and feel that I live in God's love always without my earning it, that it's freely given and that I don't need to ask for it. I need to acknowledge it. Amen. <laughs> that's, a beautiful, that's a beautiful place to end in a prayer that we can all take on. Well, Bob, I can't help but just thank you with everything I have for spending this time with us to talk about your son, Daniel, and uh, this work of both grief and of remembrance and for shining a light for those of us who can learn so much from what you're saying. Thank you so much. As an ending for me and as a plug for you, Um, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't respect the email you sent me so much. Oh, And it it showed what a good reader you were. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. I took your essay quite to heart, and I hope that others will find their way to your essay as well. You can find it online. It's at the Image Journal, and again, the title of it is In the Unwalled City by Robert Cording. Thank you again, Bob. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.